Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. Welcome to Skyline. My name's Jonathan, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here and excited uh, to share. We're in a series on revival. We're looking at um, the history of God in revival throughout the Bible, and we're working our way through the Old Testament right now. We'll get to the New Testament shortly. And so it's been so fun to watch and to see how God works over history and to receive the truths that are baked into these stories about how people responded to God that activated his heart toward them and where God would show up and begin to work. And that's our heart for our day and age, for our generation, is for us to see revival in our church, in our city, in our state, in our nation, on the globe. We want to see God act again. We love Habakkuk 3, right, where it says, God, we've heard of your fame and deeds. God, we've heard the stories, and and Habakkuk says, renew them in our day. Do it again, Lord. What you did then, do it again in our day. We're desperate for you to work again as you have in the past. So that's our heart. And so we're going to be in in Haggai today. Haggai. Does anybody know how to actually say this name? I don't. But Haggai. I'm just going to say Haggai, and you just go, sounds right. Cool. Okay, good. Chapter 1, if you've got your Bible, turn there. It says this, In the second year of King Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, 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 I don't know, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of the prophet. See, it's interesting. There's, there's our words and then there's God's words. <laughs> and, and can I just say, you never want God to say these people about us. You notice the difference between he's like my people and then he's like these people. It's like when your wife's like your son has... And you're like, my son? We made him together. Like, what? You know, it's like, but clearly he's doing that. He's my son. And God's like, these people, right? But then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, my house, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So 16 years earlier, right, 536 BC, um, the Persian emperor Cyrus has, had issued this decree allowing the Israelites, the Jewish exiles in Babylon, to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And in response to this decree, about 50,000 people raised their hand and said, we'll go, we'll go back to that place and we will rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem, see the glory return. This remnant, right, this, this small portion of the original people who got exiled agree to go back. And, and so they had this new leadership, Judah, Zerubbabel, and Joshua, the high priest. Um, the, the people, they settled in or near Jerusalem, and they began the restoration. They cleared the temple court of rubble, replaced the altar of burnt offerings on its base, and they started sacrificing again. So they started sacrificing even though they hadn't fully rebuilt the temple. They just got the foundations cleared, they got the altar rebuilt, and they started sacrifices. And this was by, uh, in the fall of 536 BC. By the spring of the next year, right, they had laid the foundation of the temple, and then trouble shows up, right? <laughs> they hit resistance. Uh, they experienced hostility from the neighboring tribes, especially the Samaritans. Um, also, Cyrus, the king who issued the decree, he dies in battle. A new king takes his place, and he starts getting all these letters from people saying, hey, they're doing these things. These aren't good people. They're not honorable people. They're rebellious people. They only love their God. If you let them rebuild this thing, they're going to be a thorn in your side. And so the king, the new king, uh, Kamses, he issues a new decree for them to stop the work. And so the remnant, they hear this order and they cease all the work. And so what happens when they cease the work? They cease God's work. Why they're there, their, their thoughts change, their priorities change. And what do they do? They just begin going about the business of their lives building their own homes, starting businesses, restarting an entire society, right? I'm sure they're starting schools and they're trying to rebuild roads and they're doing the stuff of life. And over time, the desire to rebuild the temple starts to fade, right? The why of their move just starts to ease toward the back of their mind, and they're on their way to not being a holy people called by God to a holy work, but to becoming a secular people who now house a once sacred land where the things of God are just a memory in the back of their head. But then God, after 16 years, so 16 years of just doing this thing, he sends Haggai to them to give them this word of the Lord, and it's this really significant moment. And I love Haggai because Haggai um, is what they call the last three prophets, the prophets of restoration, right? So they weren't the beginners of the work. They actually get there in the middle when the work is the hardest, 
right? So we all know, like, if you're like me, I love the beginnings of things. I love the vision. I love the energy. I love the, it's like, but it's in the middle of it, right? It's in the middle of it where you just go, Whoa, this isn't romantic anymore. Like, all the cheering has gone. All the attaboys are gone. All this stuff. And now it's just the task. It's just the work. And the work's hard. So in the middle of it, God sends Haggai to encourage them to start again, right? And that's what we need so many times is we need a voice in our life to encourage us to start again, to remind us of the beginning (laughs) and to get back to work. And so it's interesting because you think about they've returned to Jerusalem and and it's like gone was the glory of the former kingdom, right? All the people are gone. I, I can't imagine us all getting removed from Oklahoma City, right? We all get sent out and we're gone for 70 years, and then we come back, and God's like, take 100,000 people with you, restart your city. Can you imagine what that would feel like? What would this building look like of 70 years of absence, of no one turning on the air conditioning, nobody turning on the lights, nobody tending? This thing would be full of squirrels and birds. It gets those anyways, even with us being here um, every week. But they show up, and I love the, the writer James Boyce. He says, all that was left was the rubble of Jerusalem, the remnant of the people, and the task of restoration. <laughs> they show back up to their city, their beloved city, to the temple, and all that was left was the rubble, the remnant, and the task. And yet, Haggai says, like, it's, it's this really interesting thing because we're so used to, like, these prophetic warnings in the Old Testament about sinfulness and about rebellion, and that's not who these people were. They all raised their hand and they'd say, we'll go back. They weren't sinful. They weren't doing evil things. They weren't uh, making unlawful sacrifices on the altar. I love as one commentator said, he said, they were the right people in the right place about the right work for the right reasons. What had happened is they had gotten discouraged. And mostly, I think, what happened is they got distracted, (laughs) And I think that's actually a much more dangerous thing for the remnant of people because the remnant, the work of the remnant's hard. And this is where I think the biggest risk most times to the expansion of the kingdom of God is not actually sin or rebellion or unbelief. It's actually distraction. We get distracted in the work. And in some ways, that's a simpler and more sinister form <laughs> of like letting go of God. So Haggai's this prophet of restoration. Um, sorry, I missed these, these things. I, sh- I should have been on there. So distractions, right? Um, and it's interesting because I was thinking about it, in Jesus' day, it's, it's pretty similar, right? It's not just that the people were sinful, although some of them were, most of them were just distracted about the priorities of their life. So you walk through, and, and here's the thing I love somebody said about the Word of God. It's not that the Word of God happened, it's that it's happening. <laughs> the Word of God's always fresh. It's always relevant. And this story, I couldn't imagine a story being more relevant to the days we live in right now. How easy it is for us to be distracted in the work that God's called us to do and to just let it go for a season as we build our own houses, as we build our own families, as we build our own businesses, as we build our own legacies, and we think, oh, someday there'll be a time to build God's house. But we see Jesus confronts this, right? You see people distracted by politics. You have the Sadducees who are in bed with Rome, and they're like, hey, we just need to make sure we're okay with Rome because Rome holds the levers of our lives. 
And so we just got to make sure we don't do anything to upset the apple cart with Rome. We see this today, right? We see people who have let go of the building of God's kingdom to build a kingdom that seems more relevant, more here, more real. See people distracted with politics. You see people distracted with prosperity, right? The tax collectors are like, Rome's in charge, so we might as well make some money while we're at it, right? We might as well build some houses and do some stuff, build our businesses. They're, they're distracted with a chance at prosperity. They see how they might be able to make a life within this system. We see the Pharisees, they're distracted by purity, <laughs> They're like, if we could just get people to do the right things all the time in front of God, if people would stop drinking, stop listening to rock and roll, if these kids would just shape up, God would show up and the church would be awesome again. And it's just like, we're just, we think that we can control our way into the kingdom of God. Sin management. If we can just control mostly the outward sins, if we can get the outside of the bowl clean, this thing will work. And it's a distraction. It's not actually what Jesus asked us to do. You have a distracted by purity in the last. I think you, it's really interesting. You're distracted by protest. You see the zealots who are so up in arms at the injustice of the Roman Empire that they get, they get distracted and they give their lives to the protest, both nonviolent and violent, of Rome. And so here's the point. In all of these things, the, the, the point of all of this is that these things aren't bad things. God doesn't call these things bad. He doesn't say you should do none of them. It says you should do these things in the right order. And all of these people miss the Messiah. For all of their goal to build a good world, to honor God, to live for God, they actually missed Jesus. They missed Jesus because they thought they were doing God's work. <laughs> The zealot who would murder a Roman soldier thought he was doing God's work. He was delivering justice to the oppressor, to the occupier of their land. He believed in his heart he was doing God's work. And so in these days, we hear the message of Haggai, and he just says, are you distracted in these days? Are you giving yourselves to things that God never asked you to give them to? Are you giving yourselves to things in a way that God says, be careful? And we hear this message in the middle of this, this passage. God says this to Israel. He says, give careful thought to your ways. Take a moment and think about your life and what you're living for and what is the end result of all the things you are giving your time and your money and your heart and your thoughts and your talent and your resources. What will be the end game of this? Will it be the kingdom, my kingdom, or will it be your kingdom? In another passage, Jesus says this. He gives a picture of those who miss the kingdom. They said, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Sounds similar to Haggai, right? They said, is it really the time to build the house of the Lord? I don't know. We're in the 69th year, not the 70th. We don't want to break the, you know, it's like they start to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. 
Servant came back and reported to, this, to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Isn't it fascinating? The people who missed the banquet weren't sinful. What were they doing? They were building businesses and they were building families. <laughs> Two things that God loves. God loves business. God loves family. But God wants... Hey, he wants himself. He was like, I want to be first. I want to be first. When you start saying no to my invitation to build these other things, you're out of alignment with my lordship, with my kingdom. It's not that those things are bad. You just got to get them in the right order. But we start to make excuses, right, about building the house. We're like, yeah, but what about sports? What about family? What about business? What about this? And as you know, the older you get, the more complex your life gets and the busier it gets. We've got a lot of 20-somethings in this room, and I, I love it so much. And I was sitting with some of them the other day, and I was like, you, you will never be less busy than you are right now. I know it feels like you're super busy when you're in your 20s, but believe me, your life is just going to get more complex and more full with good things right? With good things, with marriages and with families and with businesses and with leadership tasks. God's going to entrust you with things. And yet in the midst of it, you have to keep him number one. And I, and I, I just want to tell you, it takes so much energy to seek first the kingdom of God and allow God to add all the other things rather than add all the other things and then try to stuff Jesus on the top, <laughs> And be like, see, Jesus, I did all this for you. And he's like, eh, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Give careful thought to your ways. That's, that's the main message of today's talk. <laughs> Have you taken a moment lately and given careful thought to your ways? What will be the result of my life if I continue to do the things I'm doing now for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years? What will they say about me at my funeral if I change nothing right now and just keep going? Will they say the things I want them to say? Right? As one writer said, we have to be careful because it is possible to mislive your life. <laughs> it's possible to mislive your life. So what does God do in the midst of this, right? The first thing he deals with the excuses. He deals with their excuses. They say, is it really time? And then God says, well, he says, they say, is it really time to build God's house? We don't know. And he goes, well, is it time for you to build your own houses? Isn't it interesting that time gets mentioned on both sides? God says, what you do with your time really matters to me. And what you do with your time displays your priority. You cannot hide your priority if you just look at your calendar. If you take a day in your life and measure out what you spent your time on, it will show you where your heart is aimed Right? And so I can tell you, I love Jesus with my whole heart, but if I show you my calendar and it doesn't reflect that, you should just be like, Jonathan, you're a hypocrite. You have two faces. <laughs> you have one in reality and you have another to people when they ask you what your life is about. Jesus has clear things to say, but our life kind of boils down to time, right? And money, the other thing says, he, he goes, where are you spending your money? You're spending your money on your own livelihood, you're building your house. You're building your legacy. You're, you're doing all these things in your own life. And God kind of puts his finger on these 
two things. One person uh, said it this way. He said, suppose, and, and there's some stuff in here where we can unpack, but suppose that we allot ourselves a generous eight hours a day for sleep, if you need more than that, three hours for meals and conversation, 10 hours for work and travel. Still, we have 35 hours each week to fill. What happens to those hours? How are they invested? A person's entire contribution to the kingdom of God may turn on how those hours are used. The only thing I would quibble with is in this statement is I would say, <laughs> your 10 hours in work and travel and those hours, because it all counts for the kingdom of God. What you do in your work and what you do in your free time, it all counts. It's not like work is just slaving away so then you get to go to church and be a Christian. No, no, no. All day long, all of this matters. So you literally get massive amounts of time every week to live for Jesus and for the kingdom. How are you investing that time? Because it matters. It matters to God. So their intentions were to go back and rebuild the temple, but their intentions didn't come to fruition. Instead of having God first, they actually slowly switched, and they got their lives first. And can I just say, this isn't about God needing a temple. God wasn't like, you have to build a temple because I can't do anything on this earth unless you build a temple. No, no, no. This isn't about going to church. It's about obedience. It's about how has God set things up, and am I willing to live in the wisdom of his way, right? Because I've heard all the things. I know that all of creation is infused with the presence of God, but creation isn't the presence of God. Can I get an amen for that, anybody? Right? You can sense God's presence in the mountains, but that is not where God promises his presence will be week in, week out. He promised my presence will be in the center of my people. Wherever they gather, I will be there. If they make me a home, I will meet them in that place. And it's amazing, even if you travel Europe or other parts of the world where there's empty cathedrals that nobody gathers in anymore, there's still like whispers of the presence of God. Somebody built a place for God and God's still eerily almost there in those places sat in them all over Europe. You just sit down and you just feel the sacred. Someone intended for God to be housed in this place amongst his people and still he's whispering. He's saying, if somebody would just come back to this place and fill it, <laughs> I'd be here in my fullness. So the question this morning, um, and I mean, you just track. God says, I'll dwell in the garden with my people. I'll dwell in the tabernacle with my people. I'll dwell in the temple with my people. I will dwell in the church with my people. And one day I'll dwell in the new Jerusalem with my people. <laughs> where my people are, where there's two or three gathered in my name, I will be in their midst. So just a few questions as we kind of just track along. What, what's happening right now in your soul? If you could be honest, are you flourishing? Are the fruits of the Spirit naturally rising? Are you at peace are you whole? Or could you identify with God's judgment where he says you eat, but you're never filled. You drink, but you're always thirsty. You put money into your purse, and yet it seems like there's a hole in the bottom of it. And I, I, I honestly believe this is both like material in some ways, but I think it's also he's talking about spiritually. 
He's saying you do all these things and yet you are never satisfied. You get to the end, you make a lot of money, you marry the right person, you have the right amount of kids, you get in the right house in the right school district, you have all these things and yet there's an emptiness at the end of the day as you pursue those things. You don't feel full. You don't feel content. You feel like something's missing. And I think it's easy to miss because on the outside, our lives can look successful and right and well-adjusted and mature. And yet inside, there's something like percolating that's just like, this isn't enough. It's not enough. Because I chased that thing and I thought if I get it, I'll be happy and I got it. And all it did was it expanded. (laughs) It's like that thing moved, the goalpost moved all of a sudden. And I think it's because the lack isn't on the outside, the lack is on the inside. And so I found this, this uh, really interesting verse. So it says, you've planted much, you've harvested little, you eat but never have enough. And, and friends, can I just say, I don't know of a verse in the Bible that describes our generation more than this one. That describes like our culture right now. Where we're constantly getting what we want and yet it's not enough. Um, so I found this verse in Psalm 106, 15, and it's telling the story about the Israelites in the desert. If you remember the story, Numbers 11, where they complained against God about manna. God's feeding them in the desert supernaturally, and they're like, I'm bored of manna. Can, you, can we just go back to Egypt and have soup? I mean, they're li- literally, they're complaining against God, and so God sends quail, <laughs> He sends like this giant flock of quail and they take it and they eat it. And God's so mad about their complaining, he sends a plague and they die, (laughs) right? Big lesson here, okay? Don't complain about miracles. Just take them, be happy. But in Psalm 106, it says that they got, they were lusting in the desert. They were greedy in the desert. They wanted more and God gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul, I've never read this verse. And some say he sent a wasting disease, but I think this one nails it. God says, I will give you what you want in the material, physical, and yet there's a disease inside of you that no amount of food, money, pleasure can fix. And you'll live in a leanness of soul. I read that this week and I just felt so burdened for our generation because I think so many people, maybe even in this room who are Christians even, live right now in a leanness of soul. A leanness of soul feels like a lack. And we're not meant to live that way. Jesus says, come to me all you who are thirsty and drink in streams, abundance, fullness of living water will come flowing out of you. The promise is fullness, not leanness. So if we're living in leanness, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is it I'm doing that's leading me to leanness instead of fullness? Sometimes God gives us what we ask for. (laughs) We ask for success and he gives it. We ask ask him for money and he gives it. We ask him for a family, he gives it. We ask him for, you know, sometimes we get what we want and it's not actually what we wanted, <laughs> turns out. 
Revelation 3 says this, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. He says this, for you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need a nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So on the outside, they seemed like they had everything, and yet on the inside, they were living in this reality, the leanness of soul. And it's interesting that lukewarmness in the Bible reveals itself in a lack of self-awareness. They did not realize. It reveals itself in pride, which pretends to know better than God, and it reveals itself in defensiveness. (laughs) I'm going to defend who I am and what I'm doing because I need to be justified. And I've just been praying for the church and for Christians that we would just lay down our defensiveness about the lives that we've built and allow God to speak into it and allow trusted Christian people to speak into it. Because we have these ways of defending ourselves. One of the greatest ways to defend your life and what you do is say, I prayed about it. Have you ever noticed that? When somebody tells me they prayed about something, that's like a giant thing that says, I don't want your opinion. It's like, it's closed. I prayed about it. God and I, he spoke, or, or, or I got a word from the Lord. I got a word from the Lord. And you're like, oh, okay. So it's just fixed. You and your clock. You and, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't pray about it. It doesn't mean you never get a word from the Lord. But we use that sometimes to keep other people at arm's length. And I just want to say, I want to live securely that if I'm living in a way, I just feel peace about it. I don't need to justify. And if you have something to say, I can receive it and be like, that's cool. Like, I'm frail, <laughs> fragile, exposed. I'm vulnerable. I'm a man. I'm not God. I'm not perfect. I don't have perfect wisdom, nor perfect ears, nor perfect heart, nor perfect mind. I'm out here doing my best, like you guys, right? And so, I, I want to be careful. I don't live in defensiveness, because it actually either leads to lukewarmness or is a result of lukewarmness. It's like the sandwich. So, Without God and the right priority, we'll never be full. And we, we talk a lot about, how many of you have read about inflation lately? Anybody read about inflation? It's interesting because it's like the scripture here said there's like an inflation to the soul. It's like you eat more and more and yet you get less and less full. It's like the reward for money, house, success, power, sports, play, all that stuff, it, it, it actually starts to decrease. There's like an inflationary pressure on all pursuits that aren't Jesus and his kingdom. So you got to work harder, you got to run faster, you got to do better, and it never actually connects. So this is crazy. Did you know you have a joy center? Anybody? Anybody? Anybody ever read about this? This is pretty cool. Yeah, you know. I love it. Kids. Kids know. So neurobiologists have shown that while most brain development stops sometime in childhood, the brain's joy center, located and observable in the right orbital prefrontal cortex, is the only part of the brain that never loses its capacity to grow. Amazing. This is God the creator making you on purpose. Although we are born of bundles of potential, our interactions in early childhood lay the path for our future relationships, shaping our capacity as desiring beings for good or ill. As a parent, particularly a mother, tunes into her infant, the baby mirrors the parent's responses. In this way, the brain begins the complex process of being wired for the back-and-forth communication of human relationships. These positive early interactions create a joy reservoir. (laughs) 
love that phrase, or a joy strength that acts as the command and control center of the entire emotional system. You were meant to live with a reservoir of joy inside of you that would allow you to face the difficulty of existence. God made you to encounter his joy. That's why the Bible says the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Dr. James Friesen and his colleagues explain, when the joy center has been sufficiently developed, it regulates emotions, pain control, and immunity centers. It actually keeps you healthy. <laughs> your immune system is connected to your ability to process and live in joy. It guides us to act like ourselves. It releases neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. It's the only part of the brain that overrides the main drive centers like food and sexual impulses, terror and rage. Have you ever heard in church that your best way to avoid sexual impulses, gluttony, terror, fear, rage is joy? More joy. <laughs> Live in more joy, in more wonder, in more freedom in Christ. That is the way to avoid all these negative things that we hope our children will avoid. They suggest that without sufficient joy strength, we spend the rest of our lives trying to fill the deficit. And the problem is, many times we're humans, we fill it with things that can't actually give it back. And here's what I, I just felt like the Lord said this week. It's like, most of the ways we live our lives these days warp and atrophy our joy centers. They don't actually fill them. They actually conspire against them. Hours of binging Netflix atrophies your ability to experience joy. Social media and just scrolling, I believe, atrophies your ability to connect your heart, the joy center to God, chasing money, success, power, privilege. I think it actually challenges that part of our brain. And I, I just want to say this, and I know you're like, you're a pastor, you would say this, but I believe it. I think our generation has given God less and less and wondered why we're emptier and emptier. So if you think about the way your grandparents lived, how many of you grew up in, in, in a family with godly grandparents? Raise your hand. A lot of us. I, I worked it out. My grandparents gave about six hours a week to the church and about 60 to their work. And it was just like a portion. And I was like, isn't it interesting they tied their time to the church? And they're some of the happiest people I've ever known despite facing massive challenges in their life. They weren't wealthy. They weren't powerful. Nobody knew their name. I mean, they're gone, and I'm the only one who remembers them. Nobody. I mean, they weren't famous. If they had Instagram, my grandparents would have had like 72 followers, you know. It would have been like, I got some friends. Isn't that cool? Like, they just, I mean, it's just like this thing, and yet they tie their time. And then I think about our generation. Our generation is lucky if we have three hours given to the church every week. Can I just say, I don't want you to give your life to and through the church because I get something out of it. it I, I really don't care about how full this room is. We have had this room much less full, and I've been just as happy with this little church. When we were 60 people, I loved it, and I loved the people. I love what God was doing. And if this goes back to 60 people, you'll find me right here doing this same thing. And if we go to six people, it's just me and the Deweys. Well, six people just be my family. Just be us. <laughs> here. We'll just be here. 
But what I think is I think God wants to bring you back into his way, into the body to rebuild the house in these days because he wants to heal the leanness of your soul. I think he wants to heal the leanness of your soul. So how does this come? Just, we're going to land the plane. I love it. It says, he stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. It doesn't come by trying harder, by doing better, by buying more books, by doing all this stuff. It's like, no, no, no. It's actually really simple right in front of your face. Ask the Holy Spirit to stir up in your soul a zeal and joy in the house of God. To just be with him. We don't need a new way of doing church. We need stirring in the hearts of people toward God. We need stirring of the Holy Spirit. So people ask me, why do you focus so much on worship? Here's what I think. I focus so much on worship because it is the place that connects your joy center to the Father. Worship delights the heart of God. And when you worship, his delight flows into you. The happiest, most joyful, most well-adjusted people I know are all worshipers. They're worshipers. They love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They love his house. They love his word. They love everything about him. They're obsessed. They love to worship. Worship grows your joy center. It connects you to your maker. It opens your heart for wonder. It confirms that you're alive in a way that goes beyond just flesh and blood. It allows heaven to flow to earth through you. Stirring and obedience, that's what it does. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I'm going to quote Bilbo Baggins real quick. Any Lord of the Rings nerds in here? I love this phrase. He says, I feel all thin, sort of stretched, if you know what I mean. Like butter that's been scraped over too much bread. Anyone here feel that way right now? Do you feel like your life has been stretched thin? And you know, I love this phrase because everybody's gotten butter and you're like, oh, I didn't get enough, right? And you're like trying to get the corners and you're like, that's all I've got. You're, so, you're trying to spread it out. That's what our life feels like when our joy center isn't connected. When our lives are removed from building God's kingdom, we feel like too little butter spread over too much bread. And I love the end. He says, this can't be right. I need a change or something. <laughs> And some of us in here this morning, you just need a change. You need a change of direction. The Bible would call that repentance. You would look at your life and you would say, I'm spending too much of my time and money on my own house, on my own existence. I need to turn some of that toward the Lord. So many of us in this room have what we call today church baggage. (laughs) We've arrived back and we see the rubble of the church and we go, oof. That looks like hard work. I don't know. I'm I'm so busy. I've got all this stuff. And the Lord's just asking us to jump in. And I think it can be easy to look at the rubble of the church, the remnant of the people, how small the church is today compared to society. And we can look at the task and we can just go like, it would just be easier to drink and be merry. Corinthians, like, drink and be merry for tomorrow. The life's too short to give ourselves to this kind of thing. And I would say your life is too short to not give yourself (laughs) to this kind of thing. So the Lord gave me this verse, Haggai, a few months ago and just told me that skyline, part of our calling as a church is to rebuild the church in this generation, to show a different way of being the church in this generation, to rebuild 
um, rebuilt the beauty of the bride of Jesus, that the church is a beautiful thing worth giving your life to. And I know it's maybe difficult and the years might be long, but in the sweat, sweat and blood and tears of this work, the leanness of our souls will slowly be healed. <laughs> brick by brick as we rebuild the church in this generation. God's just... He's breathing life into our souls. The things and the places where we're lean will get healed. So here's, here's what I see. I see the rubble <laughs> of the church. And I don't just see the rubble. I see Jesus standing over this rubble going, this is mine. I love the rubble. <laughs> he sees a building that could be built out of this rubble. And I just go like, all right, as long as Jesus is in the midst of this struggle, this rubble, I'm good with it. I see the remnant, this small group of people, and I see Jesus going to the Father and saying, I will go to earth, just give me 12. Isn't that amazing? Give me 12 people and I'll change the world. That's it. So we don't focus on the size of the crowd. We focus on the man, Jesus, who says, give me 12, look what I can do. I look at the task of restoring the church and I see the Holy Spirit hovering over the body of Christ right now in a way that I have not seen in my entire lifetime. I've been in church my whole life. I've been a Christian for 25 years. I've been in ministry for 23 years and I've never seen the Holy Spirit nearer to the body of Christ, more available, more open, seeing people's lives get in touch. Jesus says, Jesus says, blessed, happy, abundant are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be what? Filled. It's like our hunger for God begins to mend the pockets of our soul where there used to be leakage. Now it's like we begin to fill up. And I think he's inviting us into that this morning. So I want you to stand to your feet. I want you to just close your eyes for a second. I want to pray over you. Spirit to speak into our lives, to speak into whatever you're building right now, because I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know, but he knows. Revelation, Jesus shows up and he says, I know your works. <laughs> I know. Would you let him speak into your time? say, is it time to be building your own house, your own career, while there's work to be done elsewhere? Would he say, your resources? But in that, I love the mercy of God because he sees the leanness of our hearts and he wants to heal it. So I just want to, if you've been li living in like leanness of soul, Do, do it my way and you'll find abundance, fullness, wholeness. So Jesus, this morning, I just want to say yes to your way. I don't want to have to make it up. I don't want to have to string it together. 
want to say yes to what you have provided us. So Lord, I just pray for anyone in this room who's living in leanness of soul, that they would hear your voice today saying, come and follow me. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I pray through us, Lord, in this generation, we would see the beauty of the church arise again. That people would look on who we are and what we do and say, what a beautiful thing it is to be the family of God. So we just bless you today, Jesus. We bless you in your name. our prayer team up here. And I just want to say, if you sense any movement of the Holy Spirit, I just want to invite you to come and pray. Let somebody pray over you. If you're just like, man, I just need to deal with the Lord about my life. If you want to pray at the altars, you'll be left alone. You can just come and deal with the Lord. But um, I want to encourage you, if something's stirring there, just help sometimes to let somebody pray over you. Let them actually hear God on your behalf and see what he might say. So we're just going to sing and we'll wrap up.